Welcome to the Clear-Headed Podcast. I'm Kate Madry, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. This is the podcast that drops in on people's moments of clarity surrounding their sobriety. Super LA of me, but I like to start every episode with a deep breath in. So if you're driving to work or you're on your way to run some errands or maybe you're in bed getting ready to wind down, let's just start with a deep breath in and out. Okay, let's get clear-headed. For some people, choosing to be a non-drinker or to become sober isn't that far off from the reality they've been living in. For Michelle Yang, that was the case. She used alcohol more like a prop, a prop to get through social events, to seem like she could fit in, and even to fit in to a culture that she wasn't originally born into. This conversation with Michelle is incredibly enlightening. She talks about her choice to become a mental health advocate after being diagnosed with bipolar 1 at age 20. And although becoming sober and a non-drinker wasn't a huge shift for her, it did have a huge impact in her life. I'm one of those you know, more uh, unique people in the, in the alcohol-free and the sober community because I um, never struggled with uh, an addiction to alcohol for, per se. I, growing up, I watched alcohol abuse, you know, alcohol use disorder manifesting in my family, you know, in my dad's side of the family. And I witnessed growing up how destructive that could be. And so it wasn't something that I naturally gravitated towards so much, but of course, you know, I went to a huge university, you know, (laughs) where alcohol is the culture, right? Everybody, you know, I mean, not only in university, but pervasively across our society, you know, I'm a immigrant from Korea. I'm Chinese from Korea. It's like Korea has one of the highest alcohol use, you know, disorder rates in the, around the world also. So in both you know, in all of my cultures, that it, it is a, it's a problem. It's a problem in most cultures, right? And yeah. so the moment of clarity kind of came for me in that I was always more of a fake drinker. <laughs> I don't know if you've <laughs> ever heard of that, but you know. Tell me, tell me, tell me, what do you mean by that? I always wanted to fit in, right? Because I'm an, I immigrated when I was nine and, you know, I had to learn English. I, so, you know, I always felt like an outsider. So in college, it's like, yeah, I mean, everybody's drinking. So you want to fit in, but I don't actually want to drink. I actually, I don't want to be a heavy drinker. So I was one of those people who could nurse one bottle of beer for like, two hours like for the entire (laughs) party I would just hold it it was a prop and I would think in my mind that this is my prop and this puts people at ease like it was an it was a very something that I had a a very high level of awareness about that this was a prop for other people you know like and uh so that kind of went on because you know I noticed even in college when I would like was like you know, trying out like, oh, the yellow tail tail was like, you know, the, the cheap wine that was, you know, when we're like, we're, that, that all the young adults were kind of testing out, like, you know, feeling grown up to have a glass of wine with dinner and stuff. I would realize and recognize that 
it was messing up my sleep for the rest of the night, you know? And it, for me, I was like, I don't know why for other people, it seems to be something that helps people sleep. But for me, I knew it wasn't working. And now I know the science behind it is that it doesn't help people sleep at all. Right. right. Every, everybody who thinks that it does, they're mistaken, yeah. you know? And so I live with bipolar one and I was diagnosed at age 20. And so even before I was diagnosed, I knew I was struggling with mental health. You know, I was struggling with depression and anxiety. And I knew that I had to prioritize my sleep and protect it, you know? And so um, it just wasn't it just wasn't worth it. Right. Yeah. And so, um, but still it's so hard in society, like, cause I worked in advertising and there's like, you know, high pressure, high drinking cultures. Yeah. And if you don't drink, you were an outsider. Yeah. So I still, I still like in my well into my twenties and my thirties, I was the prop, the drinking prop, I held the, held the, you know, pretend pretend drink. And it wasn't until I became a mental health advocate was like, wasn't until 2019, early 2019, when I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm too old. I'm almost 40. You know, (laughs) and I was like, I'm going to be myself now. And that's when I was like, everybody, I don't actually drink. (laughs) And like, and, uh, and, uh, that's how that was, that's been my journey. And it also helped a lot that, um, my husband who I met in, uh, like 2008, when we started grad school, he also doesn't drink. And he's also one who doesn't drink by choice. He like never struggled with a, uh, a substance use issue. He's just was like, I don't need it. (laughs) And so, and it was just like, it's so amazing that because I drank for social reasons that a big part of my social life it wasn't alcohol dependent, you know? And so then, so then it was so much easier to be like, yeah, no, I don't drink. So since 2008 to 2019, I largely didn't drink, but sometimes like for work, happy hours and stuff, like I was like, I need to do this for my career. So I would have a prop, but then starting 2019 was when I was like, okay, like really, really all for career, for anything. Like I'm not pretending anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I think it's so refreshing and important and relatable I'm sure to anybody who's listening who doesn't categorize themselves as like an alcoholic an addict somebody who has a dependency on a substance to hear your story because I do think you hit it right on the head in society it is so conditioned to have a drink if you can and if you don't you must have a a serious problem with it Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there's this middle area where you can and you should and we should encourage if you don't want to drink you just don't have to there doesn't have to be a big huge why you don't have to have a problem you didn't have to hit a rock bottom you didn't have to you know become dependent on it in order to separate (laughs) there can just be this natural realization of you know Something as easy and simple, even though the reasoning behind the sleep and lack of and and not it not adding to it isn't simple. It's really powerful for you. But something as simple as that reason of just it messes with my sleep should be enough to make you say, okay, cool. I'm not going to pretend that I'm into this drinking thing. So I'm so... I, I really do love hearing that. I'm so thankful for you to share that because 
again, it is just such this thing where we think that if we don't have a problem sometimes then we can't cut it out. And and you mentioned your your social circle and how you weren't dependent on alcohol when, you know, going out and so it was a little bit easier of a of a move for you to make, but the friend group that you surrounded yourself with, what was their response to you saying, "Hey, psych, I don't like drinking. I never really have and I'm not gonna anymore." So that prop is gone. What did they react like? It was actually hilarious because the friends who who you know who are real real friends who I love and who love me, of course, they were like, "Oh, Michelle, we knew you didn't really drink anyway." <laughs> <laughs> so of course, you're not like fooling anyone, right? You know? <laughs> like, they uh, knew or, you. Or the people who matter, like the people who pay attention, are not fooled, right? Like, yeah. and and, the, and they still accept and love you, right? And so it really was not a big change. You know, for my uh, husband and I, we did recognize that because um, we we did our, we met in our MBA program, and it was a you know the work hard, play hard culture is so strong, you know, yeah. and uh, and we were two that didn't drink, and we uh, noticed that uh, even though we had wonderful friendships um, in school, that sometimes we were excluded, right? Like sometimes we were just like naturally excluded and we were wondering why, like, is it something we did? Are we not fun? Like, what is it? And I'm like, well, yeah, I think it's just that some people, they just don't want to uh, be drinking when there are people around who aren't. Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, you know, we did feel the loss. We did ask, wonder, you know, ask ourselves these questions, you know, just had to accept for us. Like we just had to accept then it's like, if they're not comfortable with us being there for that kind of a party, we don't have to be at that particular party. There are other things that, you know, yeah. other social activities that we can participate in. And, and that's absolutely been the case. Yeah. That's so lovely. I gave my mom some non-out wine from Better Roads and she loved it. Because I want you to remember that making alternative choices to alcohol isn't about losing something. It's about everything that can be gained. That's why I love shopping at Better Roads. It's more than just tasty beverages. It's a community of like-minded people. They believe in the power of choice by giving you the tools to unlock your individual freedom and fun in the world of premium beverages. Their website offers over 300 non-alcoholic wines, beers, spirits, and pre-mixed cocktails along with curated collections and subscriptions. My favorite collection is the Sober Curious Collection. So if you don't know what you're going to want, you can order this collection and try it all. Go shop and use the code CLEARHEADED to get 10% off your order. You spoke about becoming a mental health advocate, and I want to know more about that because what year did you really start to dig into that title and that role? Yeah, it was in 2019, early 2019. Before that, I was a corporate manager at one of the biggest corporations uh, in the world. And uh, I was, it was part of a merger deal that happened with my department. And I was really not enjoying my my position, you know, and, uh, and I found myself crying at my desk and I wondered, what am I doing here? 
<laughs> you know, because this was not what I had set out to do, right? Like I um, had worked in nonprofit before going to get my MBA in nonprofit management. But, you know, depending on where you live, it's like, it's slowly you get, kind of, it can pull you in. And I, I found myself at a, in a career at a place that like was not aligned with my life goals. And so I then had to do the soul searching of asking myself, well, what is my life goals? Like, what is what I, you know, what do I want to do? And why am I here? Who am I trying to impress? And uh, the answers to those questions were really illuminating, right? And I realized that I just had, I did have this calling, you know, I was bi diagnosed with bipolar disorder at age 20. Um, I was hospitalized and you know, it was a really difficult time. And at, at, at that point, I thought um, my life was over, right? Because it was like, I didn't know anybody else who had bipolar disorder. Mm. I didn't know anybody else who uh, saw, saw, sought help for mental health, you know, and I thought I would be, you know, like a liability forever, you know, to my family and my loved ones. And that even though I had been really successful up until that point, that none of it mattered because the stigma was so heavy that like I could not see hope, right? Like, especially if you're depressed and you're yeah. like, I will never get out of this. Yeah. And then you look around and you, I was like, I don't know anybody else who lives with bipolar and are doing okay, yeah. let alone are doing well. And so at this point, you know, in late 2018, early 2019, I'm like, you know what? I'm almost 40. I have my MBA. I had this really successful career in like multiple different sectors. I'm happily married. I have an adorable kid. You know, by and large, my life is great. You know, like I currently hate this job, but <laughs> but I was like, I never thought I would get here and I'm here. And so I want to share my story, especially as an immigrant, you know, like my parents really um didn't believe in uh in mental health conditions you know like they really believe, you know so it was really hard for me to access help and so i wanted to share my story to to fight the stigma to let people know that it's okay and and um and that that you can get there because i really believe in this thing called uh like the catch-22 of stigma is that what is what i call it because the only people who are visible in society who live with mental health conditions are those in crisis uh, because they can't hide it. You know, so the rest of us who are actually doing quite well, yeah. we have we hide it because we don't want to be associated with that stigma. And so then so then people, the only visible, yeah, that is the inaccurate view of what living with mental health conditions. Uh, chronic mental health condition can really be like you know and wow, the majority yeah. of us are thriving yeah and that's not what we see right yeah. that's not what the movies and shows are about that's what the news show because who wants to hear about a boring suburban mom <laughs> <laughs> i do i do i do <laughs> but yes i i She's understand <laughs> yes well i i like teared up a little bit hearing that because i think it is so powerful when you have this, you had a separate realization of like, oh, I am, I am the person that I needed to see when yeah. I was diagnosed and I'm going to become that for other people. And 
there are so many overlaps in what you just said with sobriety because a lot of times I can speak for myself and some other people that I've spoken to the idea of stepping away from a substance is like what you just described the people who are often in the spotlight that have a problem or an issue with substance are flailing they're Mm -hmm. you know a train wreck (laughs) and that's what the media shows and so when you're doing good in your sobriety it's really easy to want to isolate and just kind of keep keep your head down and keep doing good and it's just so inspiring for me like on a personal note to hear you say but it's important to be vocal and to be the person that you needed when you were flailing or when you felt like there wasn't a way up and out and through so thank you Thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, when when you made that choice to be more vocal and be more public about your situation, what did that discussion internally or with your husband or family look like? Did you did you have those conversations? It was terrifying, mm-hmm. and you know, my husband. I think was more of a proponent of me uh, being more open with it at work and, you know, and everything too. Uh, Whereas I, I hid it. I hid my mental health condition for 20 years, you know, from diagnosis to until I, I became an advocate for it. And I think for many of us who live in fear of stigma and internalized stigma, because I held a considerable amount of internalized stigma that I was like, Oh no, there's no way I could tell people at work, you know, that that would mean everybody would see me differently. That would mean that it would be career limiting. I would never get a promotion again. Maybe I would even lose my job, you know, like all the fears, the fear, you can definitely let it spiral. Yeah. For me, it was almost like it wasn't a choice. And I still feel that drive where it's like, I feel compelled to tell my story. I just feel really that there isn't enough out there. You know, that I, I look at memoirs of people living with bipolar disorder and there's hardly any diversity at all because you know what it's a privilege to be able to write your story it's a privilege to be able to to share your story um you need to be you know financially well off enough to dedicate time because it takes time to write a book that no one will pay you really while you're writing it you know like so it's why we have things like you know publishing so white and you know all this sort of problems that we're trying to tackle um I know I'm kind of digressing a bit from your main question but like I love it I love it but yeah like I just it was like not a question my husband was supportive and you know once I wanted to do it you know what really helped me too was going to NAMI which is a national alliance on mental illness you know a, a large nonprofit on mental health mental illness and they had uh they had a support group for um, people living with bipolar disorder. And I quickly became a facilitator for them and facilitating these groups and, you know, meeting with with people regularly who, um, you know, shared the same diagnoses as me and hearing about their experiences really helped me overcome my internalized stigma. And I think that was step one for me to, you know, I had to come, I had to overcome my own stigma before I could become a a fighter against societal stigma, right? And so um, I could not have 
um, gotten to where I am without that experience with support groups. And I know, you know, the sobriety community is this is the same. Yeah. It's so similar, right? Yeah. Because how many people, I think I, I would conjecture that 100% of people who live with uh, substance use disorders or have struggled with mental health conditions of some kind Absolutely. and they're using alcohol as self-medication right because yeah. and again it's the same issue with stigma right. because it's because of stigma that they won't access mental health help because like oh no i won't see a therapist right. only crazy people see therapists right. oh no i won't take meds right. because you know i'm not i'm not that bad you yeah. know and so then they go to the bar instead yeah. you know yeah. and, and so uh because it's more accepted for you to drink alcohol than for you to take antidepressants yeah you know which is it ridiculous is you to know me. It, yeah. it, it's also such a good there's so many good points that you just brought up I mean one talking about privilege because we can tie privilege right into the mental health aspect of it too I mean mm-hmm. it's a privilege to be able to take antidepressants and get access to them and get properly diagnosed too and that's a flaw yeah. in our system in itself mm-hmm. and I think that's why people stay going to the bar because that's accessible yeah. and you can buy a shot for five bucks and feel yeah. like you're numbed and absolutely and and I think that that's absolutely like an overlap in what you just said but I want to also talk about the the fact that you mentioned that you have to start within yourself right because mm-hmm. you can't build anything if you're not stable within yourself and breaking that stigma and and aside from support groups were there was there anything that you realized internally you had really had like a harsh judgment on yourself with that maybe you gained clarity on while in those support groups I mean I don't know if it was from the support groups itself but it was just the whole picture right of me sitting there miserable at my job and asking myself what am I doing this why am I doing this for you know and and what is actually what do I actually uh want to contribute you know to to society and one of those things was like okay who am I trying to impress I realized that at age almost 40 I was still trying to impress my dad And that's why I was in this corporate job that I didn't want, you know, and I was like, you know what, I don't need to impress my dad anymore. Like, that's ridiculous, you know, and I thought I was over that, but clearly I was not. And, uh, and then I was like, really spent after because it's an exhausting job, right after you know, working. um, And I'm like, we only have limited resources and limited energy. And does this job deserve all my creative energy? Like, is that what I want to spend my creativity building? Yeah. You know, is it, is it how to sell, sell things, you know, that are like coffee or whatever it is, you know, and, and, uh, I realized, no, that's a waste. Yeah, (laughs) That's a waste of what I can do. And I'd rather use my energy to, to spend on my family and to build something that I am passionate about that can, can, I hope help people help other people who was as lost as I was to find their way right because yeah yeah, like you said I really wish that I could talk to the the version of me when I was 20 and I was so terrified but of course I can't do that so I feel like the next best thing is to try to be that voice um that that you know example of like you know I'm not trying to say like oh no I'm gonna you know I'm like 
the president of the United States or something, but it's like, I just wanted to know that somebody is normal. Somebody yes. can still lead a, I mean, I know, I know normal is in quotation mark, but, but like, um, something that other, most people can hope to achieve out of life and still live with bipolar disorder. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was possible at age 20. And that's why I think it's so easy for so many people to give up, mm. right? Because like, it's hard to hold on to that hope when you don't have enough examples. Yes. And, um, and that's why there's tragically such high suicide rates, you know? And so like, that's, that's what I'm fighting. And um, yeah, that was the clarity that I gained. I hope I answered your you question. You totally yeah. <laughs> did. You totally did. You did. You did. And I mean, to talk about the point that you made and the clarity that you gained, like, is this worth my time? Is this worth my creative energy or could I be funneling this in a different way? And you since have funneled your creative energy in so many different ways, writing for Tempest and so many other incredible, incredible websites and resources, but you're also working on a book, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So my book is called uh, Phoenix Girl, How a Fat Asian with Bipolar Found Love. Love it. And it's about it's about my, you know, my journey to choosing to be alcohol free is a part of it, but also, yeah, finding love while, you know, while living with bipolar, most of all, you know, self, self love, because it also has to do with, you know, the, the fat is in there because I was always uh, made to feel less than because I'm a, I'm a fat Asian and Asian Americans, Asian or Asians in general, females are are known, you know, like the stereotype is you're petite and you're, you know, yeah. and you're quiet and you're delicate. Yeah. And I felt like I was none of those things. Yeah. And so it was a uh, really a uh, struggle to try to try to fit in. Um, and uh, yeah, so my memoir is complete and I have a, a, a literary agent that I'm on submission with. And so hopefully I can find a publisher. It's a long process for anybody who knows anything about it. Um, So please keep your fingers crossed for me. It's, it's a, it's a hard, hard thing, but the project, the book is done. So I know no matter what, I will get it out into the world one way or the other, but yeah, hopefully this goes well. (laughs) I have the most faith in that. I think that anything that you do so far has been so powerful and meaningful to a lot of people. And I think that that, that will follow. I do. And you got my fingers and toes crossed because I think it's going to happen. Um, Thank you so much. I just wanted to wrap up with you. And I know that we talked about your decision to not drink and how that was a part of your story. And I want to just touch on the fact that that is so nice to hear because I feel so often that people think that if they are sober, they are a non-drinker, that it has to completely define everything about them because it in our society is such a, a huge thing that people take on. So even though it is just a part of your story, is there anything that you do or um, a tip or tool you can give to somebody who might be in your position who's saying, yeah, I don't want to use a prop anymore. Is there something else that you do instead of drinking at like socialize to socialize or to have an event? Do you do any non-alcoholic options? Is there anything or you just stick with a good tea? I think first of all that 
you know, yes, it doesn't define you. Neither does living with bipolar disorder. Like nothing yeah. has to define you. That is a, a singular, um, you know, aspect of your life. And also I want to say choosing not to drink is also like pivotal to my well-being. I know it's like, I know it's like, we don't need to give a reason of why we don't drink, but I think one of the key pillars of why I am thriving and why I have been able to to thrive since I was diagnosed, you know, for the last 20 years when, when um, I do see other people who have struggled more is because, you know, I was kind of like, I don't know, I don't feel like it was something I did, you know, but I was just like gifted with this, like, non-attraction to alcohol, you know, Um, and call it family, you know, history or what, but I think that was key to me being able to to live a full life, yeah. right? And so I really hope that other people who may um, live with mental health str- struggles like recognize that and recognize how important that is. And, and it's hard when we are living day to day to take a step back and look at the big picture. Yeah. And so it's like, cause, cause if when you're not looking at the big picture, maybe it's like easy to be like, Oh, you know, my friends want to go wine tasting. So I just should do it right, because right. I I'm lonely. And so I really want to do that. Yeah. And it's like, and yeah, I felt that too. Absolutely. You know? And it's like, and that's what your friends want to do, but it's like, but in, in the big picture wise, I, I, I remind people that mental health conditions, it's life for it's life and death. Yeah. It's like, cancer right it's like you wouldn't just go willy-nilly with cancer treatments you know and and it shouldn't be with chronic mental health conditions either and yet we have this like lighter way of thinking about mental health but we we shouldn't it is life and death you know life or death and so we should treat it as such um so I think yeah that's the way that I would answer your question is that it's like it's easy to, to make those small choices of like, oh, but I deserve this. I deserve a night of fun, but like, but also that fun can be different. That fun can be pancakes in the morning, that fun can be, you know, a hike to see the sunrise or, you know, so I feel like you don't have to um, really abstain from life and the friends who love you, of course, would care. Of course, they don't want you to struggle. Of course, they would make this sort of allowances, you know. Yeah. Um, and if they don't, then they're not they're not good for you, right? right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I appreciate that answer so much. I mean, even just just the message that even if you're making some a change that feels small to you, like you don't have an alcohol dependence or it's not completely ruining the social life that you've built, it can make a big impact. A small choice can make a big impact, especially when it comes to your mental health and to honor that and to cherish that and to really respect that choice. So Thank you for just stating that. And thank you for this conversation. I am so excited to keep in touch and I'm really excited to see where this book goes. Thank you so much. And thank you for all that you do. Yeah, you too. Clear Headed is sponsored by Free Spirits. Head to drinkfreespirits.com and use code clearheaded20 for 20% off your first order. This episode was recorded at the Wave Podcasting Studios and the music used was created by Honeydew. Special thanks to Sarah Ashcraft. For more tips, tricks, and tools, head to our website, theclearheadedpodcast.com.